a new era for solar technology, developments in the US, India and the UK, and all the latest from the world of storage. It's the Solar Media Podcast. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Solar Media Podcast with me, Liam Stoker, and joining me all the way from Japan, as usual, is Andy Colthorpe. Andy, how are you? Yeah, very well, thanks, Liam. Not bad at all. Um, been working across multiple time zones again. Um, so as, as per? As per usual, so I'm a little bit tired. Um, we did a really good webinar with Saft this week, obviously in lieu of physical events. Um, it's good to get some online stuff done. So, yeah, I've uh, been doing that and trying to keep up with the news, uh, which is constantly changing, isn't it? Constantly changing. How's things where you are? Yeah, yeah, all good. Um, like you say, just just keeping up to, well, trying to keep up to date with everything. Um, there's been quite a lot going on um, in the international solar sectors, um, which I'm sure will come on to um, throughout the next kind of 50, 60 minutes or so. But um, just... Just to really kick us off before we get into the meat of the podcast, Andy, I thought mm-hmm. I would celebrate the big man Elon Musk's birthday with a little bit of a quiz for you. Oh, go on then. If that, if that sounds of any <laughs> of any interest, I if have we, got. If we musk, I, I, <laughs> that was um, that was poor. Um, I've got in front of me yeah. a list of tweets yeah. that are either from. Mm-hmm. Elon Musk, so yep. Elon Musk himself, Donald Trump, or bored Elon Musk, the the Twitter it's famous parody, parody account. account. That's a great parody account, that is. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna read the quotes. I'm gonna read the tweets out. All I want you to do is just tell me where they come from. So any one of those three. Okay. So how basically how well do you know Elon Musk? Or, or at least his Twitter probably account. Not, probably not as well as you'd imagine. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> right, so first yeah. up, first first tweet. Um, time so, to break I'm up. I'm so worried about this. <laughs> none of it's bad, none of it's bad. Go on. Um, first tweet, time to break up Amazon. Oh, that was Elon Musk. Correct, it definitely was Elon yeah. Musk. Yeah. Um, obviously, he has um, quite the spat with Jeff Bezos. So, yeah. Um, number two. Many are saying I'm the best 140-character writer in the world. It's easy when it's fun. 140 Now, that's that's the old format Twitter, isn't it? Yes. So, before he got yeah. wrapped up. Saying he's the best. Now... I mean, say what you like about Elon Musk. He's quite... He's not as self-aggrandizing as that. So I'm going to go with the, the real real Donald Trump for that one. It, it, it is indeed a two for two. Yes. Go Let's on. see if you can carry this oh, on. Right, number on. three. Go on. Yeah, go on. <laughs> number three. Yeah, go on. <laughs> the, coronavirus pan- the coronavirus panic is done. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, that was Elon Musk as well, wasn't it? It was indeed. It was indeed. Elon and not wearing a mask. Musk. <laughs> yeah. uh, num- number four. Go the on. only debate you should be concerned with now is window or aisle seat to Mars. Are any of these going to be from board Elon Musk? Because I reckon that's from the real deal as well, isn't it? I'm. I'm just saying nothing. Well, you're gonna tell me who it is. Is that that's Elon Musk? <laughs> no, that, that that was bored Elon Musk. Oh bored Elon Musk <laughs> after all. Yeah. Um, right, next up. Um anyone think they can get a good multiplayer Minecraft working on Tesla or maybe Pokemon Go? That's the real Elon Musk. Because I don't suppose Donald Trump knows what any of those things are, including Tesla. <laughs> Uh, yes, that was indeed the real Elon Musk. So looking to distract um, drivers with games, um, which sounds brilliant. Yeah, um, they move autonomously, don't they? So it doesn't doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. So you you are. Yeah. Four for, four for five. So you're not doing too badly. We've got two more. Two more to go. See if we can get the next two. Go on. Sixty nine days after four twenty again. Ha ha. 
That's Elon Musk. It is, yes, Elon Musk, the chief executive executive of the world's um, largest auto manufacturer there. Um, Just what he does in the spare time, obviously. Uh, Is it becoming becoming apparent now that I do follow all three of these people? (laughs) (laughs) Right, (laughs) last one. Um, Adblock, but for quotes on the internet. And that's got to be bored, Elon Musk, isn't it? It is, but um, you, you'd like to think that maybe Elon and Trump should invest in that because I think, if anything, that could be quite useful at times like this. Um, yeah, so Andy, you know um, Elon Musk, Donald Trump, and bored Elon Musk pretty well. Uh, is, I'm, is, afraid is, I, I'm afraid I do. Is, yeah. is, is that a good thing? I think it's just part of the news cycle, isn't it? I mean, as as journalists, I think people people do blame the media a lot for kind of creating this self-perpetuating news cycle, but it's a little bit like being a lab rat that knows that hitting a certain button will give it a pellet of, of reward, you know, kind of, <laughs> sort of like dopamine, but, but not in a happy sense, I guess. <laughs> and it, I mean, it's pretty weird because like, I think something we're going to get onto in the second half today is that I wanted to kind of mention... Just talk about a lot of the other technology providers that are that are around in, in energy storage and particularly in kind of large, larger scale stuff. Yeah. Um, and I can see why what Elon does gets the headlines. And I still, you know, I still think Teslas look like really cool cars. Um, I certainly can't afford one myself, but I still think they look like cool cars. But if anything, quite apart from some of the dubious stuff he does or gets up to, some of the causes that maybe he doesn't quite care about as much as it's, you know, he'd like us to perhaps think he does. Um, referring recently to that Juneteenth um, yeah. holiday, which, you know, it's, just, it's another Donald Trump reference in there somewhere, I think. But he gave Juneteenth as a, a holiday to his workers, told them on the day that it was going to be a holiday uh, and didn't let them have it as paid holiday so yeah it came out it came out the holiday allowance didn't it it's kind of like lip service to the black lives matter you know issue and in a way i guess that's better than not commenting or not doing anything at all but you know in other ways i just feel like it could be a bit more inspirational than that um but yeah so let's i mean we'll we'll get on to the more serious side of the energy storage equipment and technology stuff, I guess, later on. Um, sure. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, that's, that's my two cents on that, I guess. Well, I, yeah, I, I don't think it's, it's the right time or place for us to get into, into uh, the nuts and bolts of that. I think it's something that we can certainly discuss um, maybe at a later date. But um, I think it's, it's certainly dominated a lot of the news flow and um, the news agenda, at least, uh, across loads of different sectors, loads of different um, parts of the world um, over the last few weeks. And it's, uh, I don't think the clean economy is, is immune to that. There is definitely time to be some introspective analysis and looks at what goes on um, and how we can kind of help to boost that um, as, as a sector and as one that, that does profess to look forward and, and solve a lot of the um the world's ills or or um imbalances maybe um i think soda and the wider clean economy definitely has a role to plan that um but yeah uh moving on to what we actually um can or um have lined up to talk about today i think one of the big things that um talking about what was dominate the news flow for us um, especially on PV Tech um, over the last few weeks. Um, and this is something which, again, I think we've spoken about quite a few times um, in the podcast, definitely since the turn of the year, is this kind of emergence of a new era for um, both upstream manufacturing in terms of the size of the panels that are coming out and, and their um, stated capacities and efficiencies and, and how that's going to impact on, on the actual downstream sector. So if you have a look at the, the, the raft of 500 watt plus panels, which is um, which have come out from the likes of uh, Longi, Trina, JA, um, 
just just to name three of of um, the kind of heavyweights which put out these panels, or at least said they, these panels are going to come out. Um, we're now starting to see a lot of details emerge. Um, still not perhaps as, as as many details as as we might like, but um, it certainly looks to be this kind of um, this new arms race in in soda where um, panels are coming out, which can obviously do far or generate far more per panel, mm-hmm. and that's going to have a quite significant impact um, down the line. So um, it, it's it's a really interesting time to be. Uh, a bit of a solar tech geek and really get under the under the hood of some of these some of these panels and what and kind of identify what they can do. Yeah, I mean it'd be interesting to see kind of what sort of market remains for panels that aren't that size, you know, um, because you think- know it's been quite a quite a cutthroat margin business, hasn't it? Um, solar panels and so. In a way, is it going to be entirely necessary to have? I mean, it's always been necessary to have a really big scale of manufacturing, isn't it? But I, I wonder if do you think it will always, you know, what what it will look like in terms of the the size of the the panels that end up getting deployed as well? I guess. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a couple of a couple of things at play here. So um, obviously, um, the when you actually get down to like the the, the the wafer and the cell level technology there there is this big thing around um wafer size as well which i, I know a few people within in the industry have dismissed as a bit of a, a misnomer but when it comes to these economies of scale and, and manufacturing is as efficiently as possible um having a, a kind of standard or at least standardized wafer manufacturing output has been kind of promoted as this as a, as a way of at least reducing cost across the board. And I know um, six or seven of uh, the China-based um, heavyweights have really, really pushed towards this um, industry standard wafer size of um, 182 um, wafers, which are um, described as M10 wafers, which you, which you might see banded around. Um, and the whole premise of this is that if the industry can move towards a standard wafer size, then the manufacturer, then the kind of and any and all of the kind of wafer manufacturing lines can can hover around that. Or then it makes sense that all the panels can be around the same size as well. And there's all that kind of streamlining of different manufacturing processes can actually create um, or at least strip out some of the redundant cost in having different lines and, and things like that. But obviously. Not everyone, not everyone has signed up to that school of thought. There's a few other manufacturers which are pushing ahead with with their own and or at least their own sizes and, and schematics and things like that. So that's entirely their one. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out and, and how it shakes up. Um, but there's also when it comes down to size in terms of like other panels finding um, at least a space in the market, um, it's also worth noting that some of these, well, of of the panels that we've seen early sizes and, and schematics for, you're looking at a panel which is something along the lines of um, 250 centimeters by 125 to 150 centimeters. So these are pretty big panels which are coming out. Um, you're not mm. going to see these probably on on, on rooftops and the like. These are panels for the utility scale market, um, and it will be really interesting actually to see how the introduction or the advent of these kind of size panels impacts on the actual design and um, development of solar farms because these kind of panels do profess to have, obviously they're delivering far more kind of um, bang for their buck in terms of output. So how do you factor that into the design? Um, I know that we've had a piece in the last issue of um, PVTech Power, which was published on PVTech a few weeks ago from Pierre Pisker at Solar Century, which is a kind of, um, quite a big name developer in the European solar sector and um, talking about how the kind of subsidy free um, economics has changed the way or certainly should be changing the way people think about designing and development of solar farms and these kind of panels do also plug into that debate um, panels of that size um, they're obviously going to be bifacial in future so how do, how do you incorporate those into your thinking how does that impact the design and at what stage do you add trackers? When does that kind of come in? Um, how how does storage in kind of play a role into that? Which obviously 
um, leads into um, some of what we're going to discuss in the future. So there's so many different moving parts that um, perhaps aren't always thought about when these new panels come come out of the manufacturing centres in China and into, and into the supply um, into the supply chain. That I think we are looking at this kind of new this new era emerging and, and the, the kind of soda farms you'll see developed in from 2021 onwards with these kind of panels and systems and, and structures mm. will be quite a lot different to the, to the standard soda farm. And, and there is this emergence of this kind of much smarter, um, much more evolved soda farm um, and definitely much more intelligent in, in the way that they generate power and, and how they generate than just, rows and rows of um fixed tilt panels in in a in a in a field somewhere connected to the grid generating power from kind of nine till six as a kind of token time frame so it it's it leads really really interestingly into this um the new era of debate i think yeah and i mean i, I think to some extent as well i know it's a little bit shallow to say this but i think you know once you kind of pass the 500 watt threshold it just sounds like you're really stepping things up into a bigger arena really doesn't it and kind of on a very simplistic level it it just feels like that would be a lot easier for people to to get their heads around in terms of investment and i don't know i mean it just it just sounds like kind of a graduation into something more significant really doesn't it um, now, I think the most recent one that came out or that's been uh, trailed anyway is from Longy Solar, isn't it? And that's yes. 540 watt peak. Um, yeah, perk passivated emitter rear cell um, technology. I'm just reading Mark's, Mark Osborne's detailed write-up of that. Um, so, yeah, I guess we'll see what happens with that and... Like you say, yeah, how how that kind of changes the way solar farms are are invested in, um, whether that has a positive impact on the levelised cost of energy um, or not, really, I guess. And I know we're talking, and sorry, just to go into the the rooftop segment as well, um, and so I know this is more kind of on the residential and small commercial side, but I think there's one that you wrote up uh, a few days ago um, about an AC module from a uh, partnership from QCells and Enphase, right? Indeed, indeed, for the for the US market. So that being basically PV panels with um, built-in inverters, really, isn't it? So it's kind of taking Enphase's micro-inverter, um, you know, panel-level technology and kind of integrating that at panel level, I guess. So it'd be really interesting to see if that changes the way you know, people look at residential solar as well. Um, I guess, and yeah, yeah from- I, I, I think the whole sector is going to have to um, go down that kind of smart route. So, like you say, um, how how best can we integrate panels, inverters, storage um, that that to, for a, for a package which is actually quite easy to install? Because there's also been one of the big things that um, Enphase and Q cells have been quick to push is that. Um, this will make life a hell of a lot simpler for installers, which is um, quite profound and important at the moment, considering what's going on um, in kind of this post-COVID landscape. That um, installers are going to really have to hammer margins to make sure that they can make any. They're going to have to make as much money out of every install as possible. So, if if a solution can come along that makes it a hell of a lot simpler to design and install and and maintain, then that's going to be all the better for all involved. So those kind of solutions are just going to be um, really significant moving forward. Yeah, of course. And um, obviously, one thing is technology and how good it is. But perhaps in some ways, the even more important thing is what the market's perception of the technology is. And by that, I mean bankability. Um, And yeah, just... uh, Going through the the latest uh, on PV Tech, I noticed we've got a module tech, uh, which is one of our events uh, in the upstream sector, uh, bankability ratings webinar uh, next week on PV Tech uh, from Dr. Finley Colville, who is the head of research at our in-house um, research group. And yeah, I mean, it was something we're starting to see a lot more in the battery space now as well. 
Um, and, you know, I've been talking to lots of lots of people about that from my side uh, on the energy storage side of things. And it's, yeah, I mean, essentially, it's not just about how good the panel is, although obviously that hugely feeds into it, but it's, it's also about how, you know, the reputation of the company involved, whether they're likely to either be around to service it or if not, if they're, they're likely to be able to to make sure that someone will service, um, you know, your panel um, because it's it's well understood technology, um, and so on. So so that'd be really exciting to see. And I think, you know, one other thing I've noticed on this is that most of the companies we mentioned have been China, and uh, sorry, most of the companies we've mentioned so far, the big module players are of course based in China. Um, sure. And yeah, we'll get onto some of the specific policy actions that some companies are trying, and uh, some countries, sorry, are trying. Uh, to stimulate their manufacturing. But I noticed that uh, German equipment supplier, My Burger Technology, is going to become a manufacturer of um, heterojunction solar modules in Europe and the US, um, starting next year with initial production cap- uh, capacity of 400 million. Uh, but My Burger, you know, is a company that those following the upstream solar industry will have known for ages, um, as I say, as an equipment supplier. And the fact that they are kind of making a slightly downstream move um, towards building solar cells again is, yeah, I mean, that'd be a really interesting one to, to follow, I guess, over over time. Yeah, definitely. It'd be really, really interesting to see what the, what the actual shake-up of that is because obviously my burger perhaps best known for, well, at least um, in the PV sector of um, kind of entering into um, joint venture partnerships and supplying um, tools for PV manufacturers, and so now that they're looking to um, move on from that and, and go and go on their own kind of trip into um, selling module manufacturing, how is that going to impact on people that they've already supplied because they're now going to take the, those tools and and kind of use them themselves? So how how is that going to sit? Where are these people going to get their tooling requirements from? Um, yeah, it would just be really really interesting to see how um, how that's taken. Or how that, or at least how that's received. Um, but yeah, I think I don't think Marburg will be the last company to look into establishing um, a manufacturer, so um, a solar wafer cell module manufacturing, whatever it is, kind of base in Europe. I think there is going to be an enormous amount of support for um, manufacturing bases in Europe going moving forward. If you look at um, some of the noise from the, Euro- the European. Um, COVID recovery bill, a significant amount of this finance is going towards green causes. And I know that um, solar manufacturing is creeping up the agenda um, again. And there's there's talk of this kind of um, European solar manufacturing renaissance. Um, and yeah, it would just be really interesting to see how that changes the, the landscape um, for the solar sector. Because one thing that is quite clear from the office that the European Union is very very keen to support green industries um in in its covid recovery phase and i know that there's obviously quite a lot of um impetus behind battery manufacturing in that as well andy yeah no absolutely yeah i mean um i think in total not not just on batteries but uh europe i think is proposing to spend something like 750 billion um euros on uh, economic stimulus uh, policies to to get you know back out of the uh, the coronavirus uh, uh, slump, I guess, um, which is a huge amount, yeah. And uh, a lot of that is going to go towards, uh, hopefully, go towards green green energy um, stuff and um, you know infrastructure things. I mean, there's a couple of a couple of stories. I mean, one story I wrote about that's just from Germany, actually. Um, although, um, so the German government has deemed it to be a project of strategically important interest across the whole of Europe for Germany to support Varta, um, which is a Germany headquartered battery manufacturer. Um, Varta will be receiving uh, 300 million euros, which is about uh, 340 million uh, US dollars at the moment, although you know, the way global markets are fluctuating by the time you listen to this a day or two after we recorded it, who, who knows? Um, but yeah, 300 million euros is, I mean, it's more than $300 million as well. Um, and that's to develop large format lithium ion cells. 
um, which you know won't just be for energy storage if, if the pilot production and then mass scale up is successful. Um, and the funding is not an instant funding funding drive. It, it's through to two thousand and twenty-four. Um, but certainly, for example, um, CATL, which is one of um, China and therefore the world's biggest battery cell manufacturers, um, only brought out its stationary storage um, designed uh, large format lithium ion cells this this year or right. yeah i think last year actually um but anyway in any in any case it's quite recent so this is a move to try and become competitive quite early on in quite a strategic way uh, because i think you know i think all governments get accused by some people of sort of throwing money at the wall uh when it comes to this and across europe i believe now i don't have the numbers in front of me but i believe it's about three three point something billion um over uh, a few years um that the the european commission is putting in uh through various initiatives into funding battery manufacturing uh not just battery manufacturing but the battery manufacturing value chain um right. in europe so yeah i mean that's a lot of money and i'm for not for one second am i saying that they're throwing money at all but you know, just to say that within that um, and also outside of that, there are quite targeted um, ways of doing this. Um, actually, what's quite interesting is that last week, the um, European Sustainable Energy Week event uh, took place. Um, and now that's another one that obviously the physical event um, wasn't, you know, wasn't possible. Uh, so it happened online. And that's a European Commission hosted event. So Sustainable Energy Week um, had a battery event as part of that. Um, and one of the speakers, um, Diego Pavia, who is the CEO of Inno Energy, uh, which some of you may know, is the European Institute of Innovations. Uh, it's a clean energy accelerator, um, basically. Now, he said during that event that projects for mining and conversion of lithium that are already underway um, in Europe uh, can meet 80% of the continent's value chain needs by 2025. Now, I don't know if that's a little bit optimistic, but he also went on to say that um, the European Battery Alliance, which has been set up from a lot of different um, stakeholders in the industry, um, so that alliance has been set up with the European Commission's support. Um, yeah, that, that alliance has come up with sort of 20 measures um, that have been proposed to accelerate efforts, um, you know, across policy and regulation and so on. And Diego Pavia of um, Inno Energy uh, argued that um, they believe the European battery industry could just over the next 30 months, so that's just up to the year 2022, um, or somewhere in the year 2022, uh, could create a million jobs across Europe and about uh, $240 billion or 210 billion euros of new GDP. Um, so, you know, and, and apparently that is about the amount that's been proposed by some economists to be required as economic stimulus to reignite the economy after coronavirus. Um, so... I mean, it's a real, yeah, I mean, the thing is a real, it's a, it's a strange one, isn't it? Because, you know, obviously coronavirus has been just, just horrendous, really. I mean, you know, on a personal level, um, it's not been great for anybody, really. Um, but if these economic stimulus packages are going to happen, then, you know, maybe now's the time to put them in tandem uh, with movements that were already underway um, in terms of climate change mitigation measures um, and also boosting industrial competitiveness and just boosting kind of an energy economy in general. Um, so, yeah, so there's been a lot going on, really. Um, the German Industry Association for Energy Storage, uh, BVES, has argued that Germany's Green Deal um, that's being proposed should um, certainly include support for, uh, not sorry, not even include support for energy storage, but actually remove the barriers, um, should go in tandem with removing the barriers in the um, regulatory regime that affect energy storage. 
So um, I'll keep it brief because, you know, this is one, one particular aspect of, of a really big picture thing. But, for example, in Germany um, and quite a few parts of the world, uh, when energy storage systems are connected to the grid, um, they have to pay grid fees for the upkeep of the grid twice. Uh, once when they take energy out of the grid and a second time when they put energy back into the grid. Um, and when you think that actually when it's putting energy back into the grid in particular, uh, and even when it's taking it out, it can be benefiting the grid. So it's just kind of like an old-fashioned uh, charging regime that would apply to kind of generators or you know other other kinds of grid assets that shouldn't really apply to energy storage. But obviously, because batteries weren't on the grid when these regulations were written, um, they're not really included in it. Sure. So I think a lot of the things that can be done to support batteries, energy storage, and probably a lot of renewable energy stuff in general doesn't just have to be financial support, but it does require forward thinking and it does require action sooner rather than later, certainly, I think. Yeah, I think that kind of policy tweak and, and when it's tied into economic stimulus and that kind of stuff, the whole debate is now being framed ever so slightly differently. I think we're... we're certainly dismissed any kind of rumours that or any kind of speculation um, or suggestion that these industries and technologies are, are in no way shape um, suited towards any kind of ramp up. I think that's that debate is done and dusted and now it, it's kind of a, the the discussion is now certainly framed around how best can we um, stimulate these sectors to really deliver the kind of growth and the kind of job creation and the kind of economic impact that is going to be required kind of post-COVID so and that this kind of stuff is being said it's really not limited to any one economy or any one market really I mean you look at what's um, in the US this week we've had um, a lot of discussion around the Moving Forward Act which is um, a um, a 1.5 trillion dollar um, infrastructure bill which includes a raft of support for um solar in particular so they want to um extend the solar investment investment tax credit out to 2025 um they want to establish a a standalone storage itc they want to plow billions of investment into the um, us grids to modernize them to cope with um greater penetration of renewables um it's probably worth noting that as this is a um it's just a, a a bill in the house of representatives it's been um, obviously pushed by Democrats, um, it, it has passed the House of Representatives, well, House of Representatives, um, as expected. Um, but mm-hmm. for it to, the, the, there's still a significant amount of work to do for it to even stand a chance in the House, um, in, in in the Senate rather. Um, so it's it's going to require a simple majority of 51 uh, to even find its way before, um, find its way onto Trump's desk, and and that's going to require at least three. Um, Republican senators to kind of cross that divide and support it, which um, I mean, it's already been dismissed as a, a partisan wish list by one um, Republican senator. So I, it, again, it's that it's that kind of partisan debate in the, in, in the US at the moment, which, which really does threaten to hinder um, the, the the establishment of, of a world leading renewable economy there, um, which is obviously disappointing. Um, but even, I mean, that kind of debate is being had. Um, or pretty much everywhere, I'd say. I mean, last week in the UK, um, we saw the Committee on Climate Change, which is the um, the big government um, watchdog for climate policy, essentially. Um, mm-hmm. So they um, essentially track uh, the government's progress towards its climate targets um, and advise accordingly. And their big message, um, and essentially every, every year they, they publish a, a progress update just to really hold the government to account. Um, and their big message in the 2020 um, update, um, which was published a few weeks ago, was essentially that um, it wasn't the update that they were expecting to publish. Um, things did slow down last year um, and, well, essentially um, slow down dramatically and um, from the onset of kind of late February, early March, as, which is probably to be expected. But um, as significant um, an event as COVID has been, um, it has essentially created um, a window for the UK government to um, 
what it, what it amounts to and uh, a quite wholesale restructure of its economy to really embrace these technologies um, and their benefits um, across society to to create this kind of net zero ready economy. Um, obviously, the, the UK was one of the first um, countries to um, adopt a, a legal or a, a legally binding net zero target, um, which it has to achieve by 2050 at the latest. Um, it's, I mean, the power sector in the UK has decarbonized quite dramatically, but progress outside of power generation has actually been quite poor. Um, and, and in some cases, um, emissions have actually increased. So you look at transport um, and, and heat in the built environment has been particularly, um, particularly bad. Um, but it, it, the, 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 the message from the, from the Committee on Climate Change is very much you have a rapidly closing window to do something here and do something and introduce something which could really stimulate these, these industries and, and set the UK on that trajectory from net zero. And if you don't take this opportunity now, there won't be another opportunity like this. So it's very much acknowledging the significance of COVID and obviously the impact it's had across um, the UK society and economy has been drastic and, and shouldn't be overlooked, but it has created this opportunity which cannot be missed. Um, and if it is, um, so if the government does door door and, and dwindle and, and and not do anything um, in in the next kind of eighteen months, then it's the, 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 it basically is all on, on this moment, and you it, it's difficult. Having reported on UK policy for the last kind of five years or so, the government has been nothing if not slow to react to opportunities and, and slow to react to um, sector troubles. So obviously, the, the UK solar sector is being hit by a number of quite um, baffling policy decisions at times. And then you kind of look at where the policy is. The, the energy white paper, which was supposed to be published towards the end of last year, was then put back into spring and is now nowhere to be seen um with some rumors suggesting it's being um rewritten wholesale to make way for for the kind of um, ambition which is required now um and then you come up with stories in the press like you see today with um big brain mega genius dominic cummings who's suggesting putting 100 million pounds into technologies that can promise to suck co2 from the air um and it's just Where's this? Where's this level of finance being for proven technologies? Right. Yeah. I, mean, I, I get. I get that you do need to support um, NASA and and emerging technologies because you don't know what role they what role they could potentially play. Like they could be completely game changing. But for a tech for a tech which is so um, borderline to then magically come up with a hundred million pounds, which is quite a significant amount in its own, but if that was given towards solar or storage or wind or, or whatever, wind technologies with proven resonance, then there's no, the, the kind of contribution that they could make is, is massively significant. Um, so for, yeah, I mean, I mean, who am I to question um, Dominic Cummings, who is clearly one of the preeminent geniuses of our generation. But I think for our international readers, we're going to have to explain who the hell the guy is, you know, because <laughs> I think people in the UK didn't know who he was just a few months ago and all of a sudden. So he's he's kind of one of these, uh, he's a special advisor to the uh, to the government or a, a SPAD, I think, which is the, that's the right acronym, isn't it? I'm not just being, trying to make up. Some... No, no, that, that is. Um, he, he's like, a, he's like a, yeah. He's been described basically the power behind the, uh, the the throne at the top of government, isn't he? But so I mean, just in terms of the amounts of um, of money, you know, so the as you say, a hundred million on carbon capture and storage. Now, from you know, people far far smarter than ourselves are starting to say that you know, carbon capture and storage is is feasible. So fine, in certain, especially from from. Um, you know, from industrial processes and things like that. But on the other hand, my understanding is that only about 40 million uh, was pledged. And I think this is your point here, really, isn't it? Only about 40 million was pledged towards um, actual sort of renewable and clean technologies that are proven to exist. Hmm. Um, uh, from an overall spending commitment of about 5 billion. Now, 
If I just compare it to the US's Moving Forwards Act, one thing that does give me hope is that these bills, stimulus bills, aren't just green stimulus bills in themselves. So while you can't ever count on governments in general to do the right thing, although some of them occasionally do, um, you know, I think the opportunity for a once-in-a-lifetime chance to invest um, and make history and invest in infrastructure, um, it could be a powerful one, even, even with the US, US bill. And so I'd really hope that with maybe a few tweaks, if at all, that could go through. But um, on the UK's ambition, I know the UK is a smaller country than, than the US, but if you're comparing $1.5 to to $5 billion, um, you know, that's quite a big incremental drop. And I don't know, I mean, obviously the the need to invest in infrastructure in some parts of America might be more dire than in the UK. But from what experts are saying, um, you know, it seems to me that the there is a bit of a lack of ambition. Um, and uh, kind of, you know, Boris Johnson, UK Prime Minister, uh, just wants to build things. Build, build, build is the slogan, isn't it? Um, and it's, it just doesn't necessarily sound off the top of, in the face of it, to be the smartest uh, way to invest in the future, really, does it? Well, I, mean, I mean, he's he's talking about, I mean, it's, it's all well and good for Boris to talk about build, 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 but he's, he hasn't really built anything. And what he has set out to build has been outlandish and, I mean, outright stupid. I mean, the... the the airport in the middle of the Thames, which was an absolute joke from, from the very start. A garden bridge across the Thames in central London, which, I mean, for fear of accidentally, accidentally libeling anyone, I won't go into the details of that, but read it up. It, it's particularly murky. And then he wanted to build a bridge from the UK to Northern Ireland, which was then, I mean, it, it couldn't. It, it would have gone over a raft of... Um, well, undetonated World War Two <laughs> explosives, which just couldn't have worked. I mean, that would have yeah. I mean, finding all those mines would have given people a lot more work, though, wouldn't it? So, it would have <laughs> I mean, that, 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 I mean, the airport one is interesting, isn't it? It's because he's someone who staked his environmental credentials, such as they are, on his opposition to an extra runway at Heathrow, which is a major London um, airport, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and I mean, it just kind of. Yeah, it just seems a bit opportunistic. But I think, you know what, Liam, I think we're going to have to draw a line under the UK's policy space because I can pretty much hear the veins popping out of your temple. <laughs> yeah. I feel bad for you yeah. and your family. Forget yeah, <laughs> you've, you've got me started now. I'm going to have to go have a, yeah. have to have a quick break. Okie dokie. Aside from his podcast, Soda Media is perhaps best known for its industry-leading trade titles such as PV Tech, Energy Storage News and Current. Subscribe to our daily newsletters today to receive industry insights and analysis straight to your inbox. And welcome back to the Soda Media podcast with me, Liam Stoker, and joining me again is Andy Colthorpe. Um, Andy, just to really pick up on the, uh, or at least to tie up some loose ends with the, with the policy debate that we've just kind of um, uh-huh. just getting into before I had to go and, uh, and cool down from all the coming <laughs> chats. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. We've also had some pretty interesting stuff from um, India this week. India, obviously, quite an interesting market for the solar and storage sectors um, with some quite interesting and a uh, extravagant solar deployment target, shall we say, um, trying to have 100 gigawatts installed by 2021. Um they have obviously been trying to stimulate quite some gigawatt scale deployments with numerous tenders, um, mm. one of which we saw this week um, from Solar Energy Corporation of India um, actually set a new record, uh, record load bid um, that um, emanated from, from Solar Pack, but that's um, something like two gigawatts um, of additional capacity there. Um, but the big news certainly this week for um, developers and indeed um, component manufacturers is, is the news of, of new tariffs to be um, imposed on um, components imported from China. Um, so ranging from, and this story just seems to change kind of by the day. Um, so originally it was, um, obviously there's a safeguard duty in place, which expires the end of this month. So on, on the on the 31st of July, um, currently all the imports from China are, um, are, obliged to a, a 15% uh, 
um, tariff. Now that's going to be replaced from the 1st of August um, with, um, depending on whether it's a, a, a channel module infer- in, in, or inverter um, or other components, ranging from 15 to 20% um, as, a, as a basic basic customer duty. Um, that's now going to increase um, from... Um, it's essentially going to double um, to 30 to 40% from next year. Um, now, there are obviously some exemptions to this. Um, in, the, the, in the power ministry, are now saying that if a project comes forward with a, a PPA, um, which is signed before the 1st of August, they will be exempt from the new duties. But these duties will come in to effect from the 1st of August and ramp up next year um, in a bid to stimulate um, India's domestic manufacturing um, so the manufacturing sector, it's worth noting that there isn't a significant amount of manufacturing capacity in India. Um, there are obviously a raft of, of domestic companies which do make um, solar cells and modules there. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, it's certainly not enough to um, kind of cater for the level of demand required to uh, or required for the, the industry to build out the, the levels of what of what they're after. Um, we've also had, I mean, um, there's some indication I mean, that people in the industry aren't convinced that the that these duties will achieve what they set out to. Um, so we've certainly had some from interesting insight from Bridge to India, um, the consultancy um, business there. Um, they're, they're certainly not convinced that they're likely to succeed. Um, but it'd be interesting to see, obviously, whether it will indeed stimulate that kind of, um, it, well, that that kind of growth in, in India's domestic so the, um, manufacturing sector, right. and whether or not um, what kind of impact it will have on tender prices. Because obviously, if um, if the kind of customer duties are going to have um, that much of um, an impact on the system price, obviously the the bids for for these tenders will have to um, become a little bit more expensive um, to, to compensate. Now, obviously, that's going to impact on the price of power that people are paying for in India. Um, the power minister, um, R.K. Singh, um, is um, suggested to have told journalists last week that he's um, convinced that Indians would pay or would be happy to pay more for their power if they if they were in the knowledge that um, the generator had used domestically manufactured equipment. Um, that's not an argument which is held up in any other market that I certainly know of. Um, power prices is a particularly politically sensitive um, topic, certainly in, in, in Europe anyway. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. But um, again, it's one of these kind of policy moves which um, you can almost, you can certainly understand the reasoning or the logic behind it, um, but it, it, you, it's not necessarily an agreeable move and one which could actually have some quite um, negative impacts moving forward. Yeah, I mean, you know, in the over the past few years, you had uh, tariffs on Chinese module imports into the US, obviously. Um, and, you know, one thing you kept hearing from the US, most of the US solar industry um, because you know there wasn't that many manufacturers there anyway, uh, was that it would just damage the chances to deploy lots of solar in the US um, to just you know to, to, to ramp up the cost of, of products coming in, and forty percent um, you know to my uneducated is on on these particular markets does sound like a lot, um, and it seems really unfortunate that you have got basically two of the largest countries in the world by by population um they're obviously neighbors um just essentially not having uh you know what seems to be a fairly smooth uh level of trade now i certainly don't want to get into the the kind of frictions there um that's a whole separate issue but as you say just in terms of okay so india's 100 gigawatt target is extremely um ambitious and I think even if it doesn't reach that target to many, many people, Indian solar uh, will be a success um, anyway, you know. Um, but that said, it seems to make things quite difficult um, in the shorter term. Now, 
the Indian government recently uh, declared that solar cell manufacturing uh, will be a champion sector of self-reliance uh, for India and said the same for advanced battery cell manufacturing. Um, so, I mean, those, those sound like good words, but we don't yet know what that will essentially mean. And those policies were announced at the same time as it gave support to the domestic coal industry, which is not only obviously is domestic coal industry hugely uh, bad for the environment, uh, for climate change and air pollution, um, but it's also the biggest competitor to solar. So that's a bit of a, an irony um, in itself, you know. Um, but I spoke briefly uh, the other day with um, Dr. Rahul Walla Walker, who is the, um, I mentioned him on the pod before, but he's the, uh, I believe he's the executive director, um, I think that's his exact job title, uh, with the Energy, India Energy Storage Alliance. Um, and he was saying that on the, uh, you know, as you mentioned, the tenders, I think all the, pretty much all future tenders, the large ones will be for hybrid um, projects. And by definition, right. hybrid means solar with, with energy storage. So any big impact on the solar industry will likely have a big impact on the energy storage industry as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's not to say that um, domestic manufacturing in India is an impossibility, um, but like, 40% tariffs by next year, just on the face of it, sounds like a lot. Um, so, yeah, so Dr. Walla Walker was saying um, that um, plans for large gigafactories for lithium-ion battery cells um, in India are essentially thought to be pretty much ready to go. Um, and he did mention that, you know, coronavirus has, has adversely affected India pretty badly um, in general. Um, but also in terms of if COVID hadn't happened, that announcement might have come out already um, earlier this year. Um, but it just doesn't seem like the right right time to announce it. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, there's obviously there's a lot going on to support the domestic industry there. Um, are hugely what seem like almost punitive tariffs um, in the short term that could affect deployment on the ground in India. Uh, necessarily the right way to do that. Um, far be it from us to say so. Um, but it does seem like from other markets that that isn't necessarily what the domestic solar industry might want. But, you know, I mean, that it's only been a few days since those uh, those tariffs have really been, been talked about, isn't it? So I guess there's a lot more to be said um, in, in the coming weeks on that, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, th I think it's, it's one of those stories which will continue to, um, progress and I'm, I'm sure that we'll have more feedback and more insight um, up on the pages of PV Tech um, as, as it rolls on and as, as more people in the industry look to digest it at least. Um, moving uh, kind of swiftly on Andy, I know there's been a, a significant amount of, of news in, in the energy storage sector of, of the last kind of three or four weeks or so um, which includes the um, pretty sad news that um, NEC Energy Solutions um has um essentially collapsed yeah yeah exactly so nec corporation is obviously you know one of the best known um big names in electronics and um engineering technologies uh including you know iot and it uh in the world i guess um but nec corporation is headquartered in japan and a few years ago uh to around 2014 it bought up the uh, energy storage system portion of a company called A123 Systems um, that was in turn a spin-off from, well, you don't need a history lesson, but yeah, it was a spin-off spin -off from <laughs> MIT originally um, that went into two directions. The battery portion, the actual battery cell portion, uh, went off to China, I believe, and the um, energy storage system portion uh, was headquartered in Massachusetts. So, they were one of the, the early leaders, a big hitter in energy storage system deployment at grid scale and latterly getting more into commercial and industrial. Uh, it's a little bit personal from, from my point of view as a journalist. And, you know, uh, aside from Huntress Thompson, the legendary Huntress Thompson, I don't really think journalists should get too involved um, in the stories that they write. <laughs> but certainly, 
Certainly, I can say, you know, we have to declare an interest as well because we have worked on a business level with NEC um, Energy Solutions quite a lot as well. Um, so, you know, there is that personal personal side of things. And obviously from us as a company, uh, we're really sad to, to see them go. But also, I don't think anyone would argue with the importance of the role that that company played in the formative years of energy storage. And so we've always known that there'll be a huge amount of industry consolidation as the market matures, because there always is. Um but at the same time, a lot of people didn't expect that it would be someone like Energy, um, NEC Energy Solutions um, exiting. So the parent company said that the, uh, the division will be winding down. They will be honouring their contracts um, for all batteries that are already out in the field. So those will go on till the year 2030. But in terms of new stuff coming out, um, that's not going to be happening anymore. Um, and as far as I know, you know, most of those expert teams there are looking to be in, you know, experts somewhere else. Um, but yeah, just on a very brief note on the, as I say, they played a huge role in the formative um, success of energy storage. Um, and I think what their legacy will continue to have an impact because I think, you know, anyone who watched the energy storage digital series event that we hosted in May, um, hopefully they would have had a chance to watch. And I think we discussed this previously as well, but NEC had a big role in helping develop um, some of the fire safety protocols for energy storage systems, um, particularly in jurisdiction like New York, which is has the most stringent fire codes, um, I believe, in the world, um, certainly in the US, um, when it comes to deploying storage systems, especially in built-up environments. Um, and, you know, obviously safety goes back to that thing of, of bankability as well, doesn't it? What we're talking about with PV modules, sure. um, how safe your storage system is. I think, you know, if it is reliably installed uh, by a reputable company, you know, it's likely to be safe. But also the reputation you have for safety uh, will also affect the bankability of your system, you know. Hmm. Um, and increasingly, there's certifications and standards coming out for that. Um, and NEC had a big role in informing the U.S. National Fire Protection Association standards um, on on energy storage system safety. I guess so this this is a company that, even though they um, obviously won't be trading in the sector anymore, they certainly will be leaving a footprint and a legacy in it. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think you know um, what's what's quite interesting is yeah, I mean we've written a little bit about this, so do do check out the site, but. At the time, the company said that part of the reason for closing the company, uh, closing the division rather than now, uh, was down to COVID-19. So actually, NEC Corporation uh, had not been able to turn a profit over NEC Energy Solutions, but they were certainly doing a lot of business still and had been looking to sell that division to someone else. And apparently, coronavirus had dampened investor appetite. Um, you know, leading to a wind down rather than a um, a sale or a, you know acquisition by someone else. Um, albeit, we've heard comments from um, a, an analyst, uh, Julian Jensen at IHS Market, uh, wrote in saying that it's likely that it's a uh, you know wider industry competitiveness issue, um, and maybe the timing was down to COVID nineteen, um, but certainly. We're seeing all kinds of strategies for different companies to see their way to surviving um, in the energy storage industry now. And yeah, actually, I just want to bring this full circle again back to one of your favorite subjects, um, being um, Elon Musk, um, the attention (laughs) that he is. Um, And, you know, just, just one thing that it's not really so much a negative about Elon Musk, but I noticed a comment from someone on Twitter this week, who basically seemed to be under the impression that Tesla was the only company making energy storage systems. Um, and I think that just does a huge disservice to, uh, well, I'm not sure to who really, but there's a lot of companies out there making energy storage systems. <laughs> and I, I just really want to make that clear. So just in the past uh, couple of weeks, Fluence, uh, which is half owned by AES Corporation and half owned by Siemens, um, brought out its sixth generation of um, 
battery uh, energy storage system technologies and did a couple of really interesting interviews with um, Fluence about that. And they have just last week uh, kind of semi-announced a 500 megawatt plus uh, tranche of portfolio of projects in Southeast Asia. Um, I say semi-announced because the customer wants to keep uh, confidentiality at the moment, so they won't actually say which territory or which customer, um, but they have got 500 megawatts. And that's in addition to 800 megawatts of um, pre-orders for that sixth generation of systems. And, you know, what's really interesting is that I mentioned we did a webinar this week with SAFT. Um, SAFT has brought out its own uh, containerized storage systems, which actually rival Tesla's Megapack in terms of scale. Um, so Tesla, to great fanfare, brought out three megawatt hour, um, you know, energy storage system uh, called the Megapack. Uh, Zaft has got the 2.5 megawatt hour um, Intensium Max. Um, and then Fluence has brought out um, basically these modular kind of cube systems, which are configurable. I believe it's kind of 800 kilowatt hour blocks. Um, but yeah, do read our coverage to, to kind of check up on that or, or you know, even just give the, give the company a call if you see this stuff. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm, sure, I'm yeah. sure they'd love to take a call now. Certainly, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, what I mean is that, yeah, so what's interesting is they're all finding different ways to to kind of scale up and meet sort of customer demand. Um, and, yeah, and just going back to that uh, fire safety topic is that, you know, another company we spoke to this week is Powin Energy um, out of Oregon, you know. So if you think Silicon Valley is cool, Oregon's even more hipster. Uh, so it's like that one. <laughs> You know, so if you want to be really trendy, uh, name drop any of those other companies instead of Tesla um, and see what happens uh, in your chosen social circle, I guess. Um, so, yeah, it's really interesting. But, yeah, so just to make a serious point there, actually, yeah, so Powin um, actually got certification for fire safety um, under a burn test standard, uh, which is UL9540A. Um, right. And... Far as I'm aware, all of the those big providers are kind of in the process of getting that certification. Um, so, pound a little bit ahead um, in those terms, um, uh, but also I think SunGrove got it, and battery supplier Samsung SDI already had that from a few months ago. Um, so yeah, so that's that's some really interesting stuff going on there, and you know a little bit of the legacy from NEC there, um, as I mentioned. Um, to, to kind of put that in. So, yeah, lots going on, and there are plenty of energy storage system providers out there uh, doing different different flavors of lithium battery, like I think we talked about NMC versus LFP, so it's nickel, yeah. manganese, cobalt battery cells versus lithium iron phosphate, and, you know, you have people advocating for, for different uh, technologies there, but also I think they're all kind of can be complementary and play play different roles in different settings. Um, and that's actually just to just to get on to one thing that I've been on my soapbox about a little bit recently is that there's been so much interest in hydrogen and green hydrogen recently. And I think that, funnily enough, coincides with um, a lot of these government stimulus and infrastructure bills being Indeed, around that being a new technology not necessarily even new but you know another technology of innovation that can be invested in now i do think hydrogen has got an awful lot of potential certainly um it's probably got some real world applications within the next five to ten years so you know th uh, the experts tell me um but certainly to see some people see that as competitive with battery energy storage and decarbonization is frankly laughable i think um yeah. although not, not that funny really when you think about real world consequences um so i think they're just yeah just hugely complementary things and yeah i just hope that um you know investment decisions are made wisely really i guess in, in that respect um yeah we'll, we'll see what happens with that um but certainly that is my my hope and you know hydrogen is kind of almost near miraculous um in terms of what it can do, like you can run your car on it and you can drink the water that comes out at the end. It's pretty amazing. Um, you can run your car on it for, you know, almost as, as far as, um, 
as Tesla claims you'll be able to when their new battery is announced in, in September at their so-called battery day. Uh, but at yeah. the same time, hydrogen is way more expensive at the moment. Um, yeah, and so I think there's, there's certainly uh, so much more um, along the kind of technology roadmap for, for hydrogen to be at the point where other technologies are. Um, the benefits may be greater, particularly across different industries. So when you talk, when you bring in um, really heavy industry and, and heavy transport and that kind of stuff, then hydrogen probably will come into its own a little bit. Um, but yeah, I think um, we'll have far more to discuss on the hydrogen um, debate um, in the next in next month's pod um, with the European Green Hydrogen Strategy out um, early. Um, in early July, so yeah, that, that we'll have, certainly have some more to talk about and more for you to get your teeth stuck into there around the next um, during the next episode. Oh yeah, definitely, and yeah, don't don't get me wrong. Like I, I do see it as uh, you know particularly interesting technology, and I think um, you know there are a lot of realistic roadmaps for it to be um, a big part of the energy system. I, I definitely see that. Um, I just think you know in terms of. It's always been a, a question, hasn't it, within um, clean energy, or, or maybe it's just people in general. I don't know, but perhaps that's too deep for a business-to-business podcast. <laughs> yeah. uh, but people do want to see the next innovation and the next new thing. And as I say, even though hydrogen's not not new, um, it certainly kind of feels like it's you know these things come come around in circles a little bit. So, you know, neither's carbon capture and storage isn't that new either, but people are suddenly talking about it uh, because it's a, another thing. So I just don't want to see people get sidetracked from the great path um, that we are are kind of on, you know. Albeit, yeah. you know, in times of COVID-19 uncertainty, uh, it's understandable that, you know, as we said, people are looking to, to find investments, particularly in infrastructure, that can make sense. Um, and, uh, yeah. Hopefully by next month, um, we come to do this podcast. Uh, everything, no, everything, to... everything would have been sorted. The roadmaps would be clear. <laughs> the policies would be in place, and yeah, 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 everything, everything will just be done, and we can just sit here and talk about the good stuff. Well, I was just trying to find a way to uh, segue <laughs> into uh, talking about the article that we're running next week on. Uh, energy storage in the post-pandemic world from uh, Florian Meyer, uh, who's at Apricum uh, Consulting. Um, but I couldn't find a neat way to do it, Liam. So, yeah, I'll leave it to you to wind down the rest of the podcast. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I think I think we'll pretty much uh, call it a day there. Uh, come through plenty of stuff. Um, as ever, you can keep up to date with all of the um kind of breaking news and industry leading insight across all of our publications that's pv tech energy storage news solar power portal and current um you can sign up to all of our newsletters on all of those web pages um and do please subscribe um to the solar media podcast wherever you are listening to so that is on um spotify apple google podcasts anchor pretty much every channel um that host podcast we are on now um feel free to give us um any kind of comments feedback um yeah um and thank you very much for listening really